the Oilers will try to keep their season alive, while the Canucks have some very tricky decisions on the horizon. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet. 650, your home of the Canucks and your home of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I'm Jamie Dodd. I'm Thomas Trance. Oh, you got me. You got me. That is starting the, the week. Starting the week with a jump. Yeah, let's fired, go. Fired up on a Monday Always. morning here. That is, of course, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also <laughs> covers the team at the Athletic Canucks Hour. Brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. Dot CA and uh, we're we're rewatching we we have on the studio here the replay of yesterday's Rangers Tampa game and we're at the moment in the game uh, where the Rangers are up two nothing and there was a moment there and my at mentions started to fill up with <laughs> gloating Rangers fans and gloating anything can happen folks and you know what Jamie do you want to know how much I was sweating it zero zero percent too much time too much time in the game and Tampa Bay was in too much control at home. And then, of course, from that point on, they put the pedal down. 19-6 was the shot count. 19-6. So the Tampa Bay Lightning are playing for history now, right? If the Tampa Bay Lightning win another cup, they're going down in the annals of hockey history with the 80s Habs. Or, sorry, the 70s Habs, the 80s Islanders, Islanders the 80s Oilers. And down 2-1 entering that third period to just turn it up like that, get that beauty Stamkos goal on the power play, and then... Whatever Kucherov was doing, unbelievable stuff. But to just control the game to that extent with that much on the line, greatness. Greatness from the Tampa Bay Lightning. That game four feels so crucial. Like, oh, yeah. I think, I think the winner of game four, and well, you know, I'm not going to go all out and be like, the winner of game four wins the series, but I certainly had a lot of very experienced hockey people around the business suggesting to me that that's how they viewed it. Mm. Game four feels like the series. On Tuesday night, and I can't wait. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, it, it, there was a moment there where you might have been worried that both series were going to go to 3 nothing, and they would kind of be flat or anticlimactic uh, conference finals setting up to the Stanley Cup final. But Tampa certainly right back in it now with another, uh, another game at home, too, a chance to even up the series, as you said. Uh, normally, we, we reserve the pivotal adjective for Game 5, but it does feel like a oh, yeah. a pivotal Game 4 uh, happening in that How series good tomorrow. is Andres Palat, by the way? He's awesome. He's he uh, he also drew the penalty that led to the two one goal that that happens like two minutes after the Rangers take that two zero stranglehold and gives the Lightning you know that that shot in the arm they sorely needed. I mean, you go into the third period down two zero, very yeah, different. Just Durkin in that that's uh, very different hill to climb. It's very very difficult. Um, yeah, but Palat Palat's unbelievable. Just an un, uh, pound for pound for me, he's the best puck battle winner in the game. And and I liked John Cooper's description of. Um, he's, uh, he's the guy who can make blue collar plays with white collar players. <laughs> I thought that was a really good way to describe, you know, a, a, a role that I call a heavy press role, right? Uh, I talk a lot about Vasily Podkoles mm-hmm. and having that type of potential. And Palat, Zach Hyman style player, like another guy in that Al- role. Alex Burroughs. Yeah. I mean, on and on down the list. This is a classic hockey thing. Chris Kunitz, Thomas Holmstrom, right? I mean, the list of guys who filled this role successfully on on elite teams is um, long. But Palat is the pint-sized version of it. Pound for pound, the best battle winner that I've ever seen. Honestly, that I've ever seen. I think he's I think he's pound for pound the best battle winner on the wall I've ever seen. I love watching him play. Unrestricted free agent. Yes. Unrestricted free agent. I think, um, I, I honestly, for a team like the Canucks that has been a little bit 
aimless that has had criticism lobbed at it by by new management uh, about practice habits, uh, preparation that has a habit of slow starts, for example, over the course of the season. Palat is the type of guy, particularly because at his age, you're probably not looking at the seven-year deal. You're looking at like the three. Yeah, Palat's going to be a fascinating UFA case because his his numbers aren't eye-popping, right? Like he hasn't crested 50 points since 2016-17, hasn't crested 20 goals since 2013-2014 when he's just new to the league. That was his first full year, but... You know, you also know how absolutely crucial he's been to the Tampa Bay juggernaut, right? Well, so, and he's not a fixture on PP1. Yeah. And we've seen, like, JT Miller's proof positive. Blake Coleman, another one. Yan Gord, another one. Like, if you're a depth player on Tampa Bay, that doesn't mean you can't do an awful lot more in a premium spot elsewhere. And, you know, honestly, in, in a world where the Canucks were trying to have their cake and eat it too, peach emoji style, and, and do the, you know, trade... Of a trade of a uh, you know pending UFA in mm-hmm. 2023, but also sign a guy so that you don't take as big a step back. You know, Palat to me would be at the very top of the list, the very top of the list. I think he'd bring an awful lot, of, particularly because so much of the Canucks' fortunes going forward are going to be tied to what guys like Pedersen, Podkolz, and Hughes end up getting out of themselves, right? Palat knows exactly what it takes to be great. And for, and and if for me with the Canucks at the stage that they are at their development having listed the last 2 years, that would be m- my top priority. Palat, we haven't talked about him a, a much a, at all. I don't think he <laughs> Well, he fl- he flies under the radar that Tampa team, right? It's Point, totally. it's Kucherov, Vasilevsky, Hedman, Stamkos, right? Like those are the guys who are going to get all of the the oxygen, you know, as even, they should, even, as they should, and to be fair, and even like Nick Paul this year has stepped up and been really good. You know, the last couple of runs, it was the third line with Coleman and, and Goodrow and Gord, or got a lot of the pub as well. But Nick Paul, who was know, on my Selkie ballot a year ago, by the way, there you go. I'm, I'm the original Nick Paul truther. But Palat <laughs> and Kalorn are the two guys that don't get a lot of recognition, but they're crucial, crucial parts of that uh, of that Tampa Bay machine there and yeah Palat's gonna be a fascinating fascinating well, fascinating UFA decision and, and it's just like look at Stamkos last night the way that he was playing or yes last night yesterday afternoon the way that he was playing along the wall right the way that that the way that the Tampa Bay Lightning had to reconfigure their game because they don't have point beating guys on the edges mm-hmm. right they they just became this like heavy area game team and that's not really Stamkos's game Stamkos is a distance finisher and the best distance finisher of the last 15 years uh, by a lot by the way no one say Ovechkin if anyone says Ovechkin in the in the mentions um they're in trouble o- Ovechkin's a volume shooter Stamkos picks corners like it, it, they're they're very different things I often call Stamkos the NHL's premier marksman mm-hmm. and that's because Stamkos's shooting percentage his conversion rate his efficiency is off the charts he's a he's a time machine he turns goalies back to an era where they were chain smoking and five foot eight and Ovechkin is a Gatling gun, right? Like both very useful weapons. Just, <laughs> just there's a distinct thing in terms of style. But Stamkos had to reconfigure his game and play this like heavy sort of style in order to be effective against the Rangers. And he did it with such a plump. Like anyone who's been around that, anyone who's been in a team environment like that, I think that's item one. I know I know we're all going to talk we all talk right defense, we all talk all these different things that the Canucks need. Item 1 is someone who's contributed in a meaningful way to that environment and can help transplant some of that 
into this locker room. For me, that's like item number one on the sh- on the offseason shopping list is that I don't think there's anyone better capable of doing it than than Andres Plot. So I'm just going to stump for him really quickly. That would be I my like that would be my you know if not my top UFA target, certainly certainly among them. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar, Lum- Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, the Oilers, of course, play today. They're trying to keep their season alive. We'll, we'll get into that series LOL. Yeah, a little bit later because I think we're kind of both I, on the same page. I don't I, know if there's that I, much to I, say I, I read a about declaration. It. I read a declaration in the Edmonton media that this was the first official year of the McDavid-Dreisaitl Cup window. And it's just like, guys, these guys have been perennial heart trophy candidates yeah. for a half decade <laughs> and this is the second year in which the team is if this is the first official year of Edmonton's cup window with two of the top five players in the NHL that is a that's massive tough. indictment that's tough massive indictment in the organization I, I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe it when I read it I was like no wonder fans think I'm negative <laughs> this is this is hagiography um, we'll get back to that series a little bit later, but look, we're talking about potential UFA targets, uh, for the Canucks in the off season. But the interesting thing, of course, is that, you know, they've got a lot of just internal business to take care of. And I, I was thinking about this. Sorry, the Oilers do. No, the, the Canucks. Oh yeah. We're talking about, um, to, to shift. Back we're to we're the shifting. Okay. Excuse me. Um, the Oilers do too. The Oilers do as well. But, <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about this because you, you have a, a piece up the athletic, uh, today about the, you know, as you call them, the extendables of Bo Horvat. Brock Besser and JT Miller. I just like the action movie vibes. Like, I, you know, the three of them doing a slow walk, right? Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, you look at the the little pregame intro superhero yeah. video. There's there's something there. Who's Maybe. the demolitions expert? <laughs> it's JT. It's JT Miller. <laughs> um, Bo Horvat is the leader. Oh, yeah. Obviously, he's the squeaky clean. Yeah, <laughs> yes, no exactly. question. Anyways, but I was thinking about this reading your piece about, you know, how to approach all three of those situations. And I, I just got to say, I mean, shout out to uh, Patrick Alvin going into his first summer as an NHL general manager. And not only does he have this very kind of difficult salary cap situation to navigate and, you know, he has to figure out how to really add talent to the team kind of on the cheap and find some hidden gems. Like that's one thing to deal with. He also has these three very, very important incumbent players that are all in unique situations and all probably need to be dealt with one way or another uh, in this summer. Even though, obviously, JT Miller and Bo Horvat aren't UFAs till 2023. But, yeah, like, there's some time. Man, that's There is some time, but you also want to get a jump on it, right? You at least need to know that you have a shot. You know, like, if you if you really get a sense in, in summer conversations, a deal might not get done until October or December. Sure. That's not a problem. But you have to know that there's like a basis for working on it and a, and a number you're comfortable with that's at least realistic going into this season with with Horvat and and JT. And so, you know, what's interesting? Let's let's zero out a bit because yeah. we talked about the cap situation and and what Alvin's navigating. And I, I've sort of been bringing this up, and I finally sort of put it in a piece, which is I view the Canucks as being positioned like an end of window contender. And for all that I would suggest. That that's how they're 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 slotted basically in terms of their cap positioning, in terms of the strength of their prospect system, in terms of the moves that have led them to this point. The other thing that I would note is they're kind of in a little core window, right? And I use the word window loosely because I don't think the Canucks are contending for anything meaningful hardware wise with this group as as composed. But 
they're kind of in this core group window that lasts one more year, right? Like that's sort of the irony here. It's like this team was constructed last offseason far too impatiently and at far too much cost in my view for, for far too little payout, but really with a two-year window before things got really dicey because that's when Horvat and Miller expire, Hoaglander as well. And then you move on the next year into Pod Colson and Pedersen. Pedersen yep. And then and then your cap structure is completely blown up in terms of the team's group as it stands today. It's really fascinating because Boudreau comes in and the club goes on this 106-point pace over the last 57 games. They also won games 58 and 59. I don't know why we keep saying 57. Like, I know it's the clean demarcation point, but it could be they went at a 110-point pace over... 59 games actually probably more like 114 so i mean you know you want to go back two more games and give them credit for the or sorry three more games and give them credit they for the wins three. they lost yeah, the, to yeah. boston yeah or pittsburgh. pittsburgh um you know i mean you can do that so 60 games playing at a 110 plus point pace the easiest path for the canucks is to say we believe in the last 75 percent of the season and return the same group and make your tough decisions the next year or at the deadline based on that. That's the path of least resistance facing Canucks management right now. I think where you get into territory where you need a little bit more certainty this summer is when you think about what's after that, right? And when you think about the temptations that naturally arise, you know, if this team is four points out of a playoff spot or even in a playoff spot by two points, are you rolling the dice on Miller and Horvat expiring? without a return at that point. We know what the internal pressure is going to be like with an organization mm-hmm. that's never met a shortcut they didn't want to take. Are, are you willing to risk that if your goal is to win a Stanley Cup? Like, are you willing to risk that t- sort of tension mounting in this market, that the conversation, uh, you know, sort of passing over everything the team accomplishes on the ice? Or do you need to chart a new direction now and sort of nip this in the bud, begin to plan for the future now now as everyone knows one of my rules right winning is not a passive activity in this league i i mean my view is is if you assess this team and and believe that they can't win a cup this year then you're best off starting now to to chart that new path forward from what we've heard rutherford and alvin say including the non-emotional decision quote on, on jt miller from rutherford on this very station it feels like Management is looking at it in a way that, you know, is closer to what I just said, which is if you feel you're not going to win a cup, you need to start planning for the future now. Well, even just think about first answer at Jim Rutherford's end of year availability. Did did the did what happened under Bruce Boudreaux change how you view the team? No, pretty straightforward. No, directly it did uh, not. Uh, it, for sure. But what did Rutherford say when he first took over? I, I you know, there may be more here. Sure. Than you than anyone even thinks. So Rutherford's. No, my mind wasn't changed. I always thought they were that good. He still got that out. He still right. saved himself. Right. There's, I've always said there's really good pieces here. It could be the line, right? It, easily, yeah. easily. So, I mean, you know, I know we're, we want to read it one way. I don't think we're wrong to read it that way. But, but he hasn't pigeonholed himself into one course of action or the other yet, right? And, and we're going to see, we're going to learn an awful lot more by what Patrick and Jim do than what they say. Clearly, especially with how guarded Patrick is, right? And especially because Rutherford has, um, you know, 
gone a little bit behind the scenes in terms of letting Patrick speak for the organization. Not 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 entirely, but but more so now than he did at the start. Well, and there's been times where he's been asked more direct questions about player personnel, and he's deferred by saying that Patrick Alvin's a GM. Yeah, that's his responsibility, right? For sure. And 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 that's um like that's true to how the club is conducting business internally. Although. Make no mistake. I mean, Rutherford's one of the great deal makers in this business, and his his fingerprints will be all over whatever occurs. I do think the general direction and, and the planning is being you know conducted with Patrick Alvin as the centrifugal force, and that Rutherford's there to support um, you know as needed. And I, I do think he's uh, that's the role that he sees for himself. That's the role that he's functioning in at the moment. And yet, you know that when it comes time to make the phone calls. Well, especially, you know, the name, some of the names we're talking about, right? Like you know, Besser, Miller, Horvat, whatever decision yeah. gets made, keep, trade, whatever. Like those are monumental decisions that there, there's a reason you bring Jim Rutherford into your organization. And partly it's to help make those sorts of decisions. Well, and, deals. and certainly it's not to keep things the same. And I think there's a recognition of that, right? Uh, they didn't change stream because things were going well, right? I mean... That, yep. They didn't make significant organization, uh, organizational changes because everyone was uh, confident in the process. So it, it's just a fascinating moment in time for this club because they entered this offseason with a little bit of short-term cap space, right? You could make some tweaks. You could add one big piece or two medium pieces to this group as assembled and see what you could do. That is, that is on the table as a realistic, actually a straightforward scenario for Rutherford and Alvin to explore. Just bolster this group and see what they can do. That is very much, like, honestly, that, that might be the simplest plan forward with how they are structured. Even, even me, even I, with my, you know, long history of being skeptical of what this group's ta- true talent level is, would probably look at this and say, hey, that's at least a tempting route. We have to consider the possibility that you know, we might we might be fine. Like mm-hmm. we might just be a playoff team, and we can sort of defer some of these decisions or lock these guys up to deals that we can then move on from. And I think definitely, if you look at each of these guys individually, there's no one here that screams, "Oh man, that's like Miller might be the closest, right?" Because of the age he's at and the term and the money he make he he's going to make and he's going to command. But again, individually, you look at Miller, Besser, Horvat. There's a very compelling case to be made for, you know, all three of them. Like, they're, they're all really good players that you generally want to keep around on your team. Again, that could, if you just kind of go through it on an individual level, it's the fact that then you would be locking into this version of the team at increased cost if you did that with all three of them is what kind of gives you pause and makes you go back to the drawing board. But it's not – I don't look at any of those players and think, oh, man, it would be a disaster if they signed that player individually. In yeah. concert, it might not work out if you do all of them at the same time. But, well, you can't, the problem is you can't do all of them at the same time, realistically. I mean, you know, if you take 8-5 for Miller, 7 for Bo, right, and and 6-5 for Besser, which, by the way, favorable outcomes across the board. That's like low end, right? So if any of their agents are listening to this, you know, I want to I make it clear that's low end valuations across the board, in my view, right? And you add that group, right? So you're, you're talking about, what, uh, 22 million. Yeah. 22 million on three players. And you add add in Hughes and you add in Pedersen. Pedersen. Then and- you're at 36 million for five 
players. Yeah. And then put OEL on top of that right. as well. So you're at 43 for six, for six players. And all of a sudden, you're very much, you know, in a, in a pretty similar boat with, you know, Toronto. Uh, if you add in Riley, Tavares, Marner, Nylander, Matthews, and pick your $5 Whoever. million dollar defenseman yeah. you want. TJ Brody or Jake Muzzin. Um, you're very much in that same bucket of those top-heavy teams that people criticize as being too shallow to win or having too much money committed to the same type of player or what have you. So, you know, you need to be very careful. Like, I don't even know if this team is constructed to keep that core group together in in its entirety. Like, I think even if you are on team run it back, one thing the club is going – like, what, what do all contenders – what do all contenders face as they go forward? They have to lose good players. They have to lose good players. And that's how the Canucks are positioned, right? Like that's that's part and parcel with my with my read that the Canucks are positioned like an end of window contender is down the line, you're going to have to lose good players. And and partially too, that's driven by the fact that you don't have the easy replacements in house. You don't have, you know, the top end prospect coming to give you a source of cheap labor to to make you confident in moving on from XYZ guy for for futures future assets or for more affordable pieces. Uh, down the line. And if you're confident that you can be a Stanley Cup contender, well, then you can stand to lose a really good player as a UFA. Oh, then who right? cares? Yeah. Banners like even, fly forever. Well, even I would look at the Calgary Flames this year and Johnny Gaudreau. Now, I think there's a very good chance that Gaudreau ends up back in Calgary, but hey, they had a phenomenal regular season. Didn't work out for them in the playoffs, but they went into the playoffs as a, a viable Stanley Cup contender. If they lose Johnny Gaudreau, that's tough. That really, really hurts. He's an incredible player, but at least you got that crack at being a Stanley Cup contender with him in the lineup. You can stomach that. If you're not absolutely sure that you can be at like kind of that level at least going into next season, then the pro- the the prospect of losing really, really good players to unrestricted free agency it it, it becomes something you can't necessarily stomach. So yes and no. I mean, I think the Gaudreau example is a good one where the opportunity cost of potentially having Goudreau walk for nothing is uh, something you can stomach because you took your best shot. And in taking your best shot, you also created an environment where he was more likely to stay mm-hmm. because you can see a path to glory within, in Calgary. And yet, the other side of the equation, their other big pending uh, free agent, who also happens to be Goudreau's line mate, is Matthew Kachuk, who's a restricted free agent, and one thing that I think is tougher to stomach if you're if you're Calgary is that you did this bridge deal on a top end player who we knew was a top end player, and the benefit of it was one round that you won. Yeah, you won one playoff round and a play in series, I guess. But it's like that's that's tougher to swallow, and that's something worth considering too within the context of our Canucks positioning discussion, which is what is this team going to get out of Elias Pettersson's bridge? Yeah. Uh, you know, need to make pretty significant progress this summer if you're going to even match Calgary's success, uh, relative success during the Kachuk Bridge. That that's, you know, if you build a, if you build a bridge and don't have meaningful team success, I, I always think that's a massive opportunity lost. But that kind of comes back to: Do you try to maximize Elias Pettersson's? remaining two years on his bridge deal, right? Which might mean keeping Horvat, Miller, Besser, all of them, because you're trying to go for it next, this coming year and the next one after that. Or do you kind of reframe what the window is and start preparing for Elias Pettersson's next contract? Well, right? you have to be prepared for both. And, and, you know, you can't, you don't want to waste the bridge, 
but you also, I think, need to be aware that the timeline set by the Pedersen Bridge isn't this team's real timeline. It's kind of Demko's five-year deal. You know, I, I think you're kind of pigeonholing or, or trying to plan to take your best shot in years four and five of Demko's contract. Yeah. That, that's kind of my view of it based on where the Canucks are at, what they have in the system, uh, where they're structured. And, and within that context, the rolling expiry of, like, the Canucks have... S- of their Canucks nine top scoring forwards this past season, seven will expire over the next three years, right? Including Alex Chase on this year. So, you know, your mileage may vary, but you've got Besser up, then you've got Horvat and Miller, then you've got Pedersen, and you've got Hoaglander and Pod Colson mm-hmm. squeezed within there. All of those guys are getting raises. And actually, you're hoping that some of them get really significant raises because that means they'll have played. At, really, a level, really well. at the level you need them to play at for, for you to have team success. And as a result of that, right, you don't have the sort of built-in cost certainty that some of these teams that have managed to turn things around more quickly, you think about the Avalanche with McKinnon, you think about the uh, Florida Panthers with Hubert Obarkov Ekblad. <laughs> Thanks, Faber. <laughs> um, you know, you think about teams like that. They've had this cost certainty they could rely on. From their, from their core group, and that's not something the Canucks have, which raises the stakes for how they'll navigate the extendables, the, the Besser situation, which is extremely complicated, the, the Horvat-Miller situations, which are a little bit more straightforward, but still have their own unique leverage points, particularly because, uh, you know, Miller coming off that career year is now kind of a, a pre-agent, like a meaningful pre-agent, a, a guy who actually has a fair bit of leverage beyond which... Uh, is stipulated in his contract. His deal, of course, has a no-trade clause, but the Canucks voided it when they acquired him. He, he was traded before it kicked in, giving the Canucks the option. So he, he doesn't have any contractual protection, and yet because a decision on whether or not to extend with any team that he's dealt to, should should he be dealt, um, would impact his value on uh, in that. He's actually sitting kind of pretty. Like, he's actually got a lot more leverage, so I'd call him a pre-agent. So there's there's complexities in all three cases, but the overall question that the club has to navigate here is just how much risk long-term can you afford to take on in continuing to double down on a group that has not, you know, had a ton of playoffs, hasn't had a ton of regular season success yeah. the last two years, and has missed the playoffs, you know, six of the last seven albeit not necessarily as a fault of players like Besser, Miller, and Horvath individually. And the, the ultimate question to me is, can you make the necessary improvements both if you're committing the salary to all those players and if you're missing the opportunity cost of bringing in assets by potentially moving some of those right. guys, right? Can you, do you need those two, one of those two things to happen, right? Either freeing up the salary cap space uh, or getting additional assets in a trade of one of those players to make the necessary improvements. And I, I, I've been on the yes side of that equation. It's it's not an easy question, though. It's not an easy question. It's not an obvious means. one. There, because there is suspense yeah, here. Because subtracting one of those players means you have to improve that much more, right? So it's, uh, it's a very, very difficult question. Well, and let's get into it on yeah. the other side of the break. Uh, and we'll do the individual thing because, you know, oftentimes I'll say something like, there's no suspense here, right? Which, which means that I think there's an obvious answer. And I think some of the ways that we've discussed this have pointed to, you know, both of us sort of feeling that way in regards to one or or all or some of these players anyway. 
And the truth is actually a lot more gray. I don't think there's a, a, a bad bet either way. It's just there's sharper bets than others. I, I think this is a really tough decision facing New Canucks management. We'll, we'll get into some of the particular risks and factors that they'll have to be aware of in, in weighing their options this summer on the other side. Brock Besser, Bo Horvat, JT Miller. We will get into all of their situations. Get your thoughts in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. What do you want to see happen with each of those three players? And also, as a reminder, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do give us a five-star rating and review more on the other side. You're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Do you want to know how much I was sweating? Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, 650-650. Keep your text coming in. We're talking about uh, the extendables, as Drancer has christened them in a piece at The Athletic, the Canucks. Three key forwards, all eligible in one form or another for contract extensions this offseason. Of course, that is Brock Besser, Bo Horvat, and JT Miller. And I want to start on, um, as we get into each of the individual situations a little bit, I want to start on Bo Horvat because we have talked a lot about Brock Besser and the unique nature of the qualifying offer and that how, how how that makes his situation so interesting and so complicated. We've talked an awful lot about JT Miller, you know, trade discussions. Was he going to be moved at the deadline? What would an extension look like? Aging curves, all of that. And there's still some really interesting things to get into with those players. But I don't think Bo Horvat's situation has received as much attention. And I know for me, that's partly because I've seen it as almost, uh, I don't want to say a guarantee, but overwhelmingly likely that he will be signed to a long-term extension. No one can see Bo Horvat playing anywhere else. Yeah, it's just in your mind's eye, it just doesn't make sense. And and some of that is just like, you know, for a team to trade the captain, that's a really extreme move. And I, I don't I haven't necessarily got the the vibe or the signals that suggest anything like that is in the offing, but if you kind of step back and just look at it in a vacuum and just kind of eliminate some of those I don't know, soft factors or whatever you want to call them and look at the player and his status and all of that. It it is a pretty fascinating situation to be in with Bo Horvat as well. There's a lot that goes into why I think that topic hasn't ever come up. I think part of it is, you know, Horvat and his family have really embraced living in Vancouver. Uh, it's not unusual at the rink to see a whole coterie of of Horvats at, at games or at practices on any given day. Um, you know, you can see from the IG stories, right? The the skating up of Grouse. The you can you can just see that Horvat takes full advantage of living here, uh, enjoys it. His family's comfortable here. He also handles this market, right? The the Sturm and Drang that sometimes comes with wearing the C in the Vancouver market with a completely unique level of smoothness. Frankly, I mean. It doesn't seem to perturb him at all. Like, it doesn't bug him at all. He is totally comfortable in that role. And that's not an easy thing to find. It's certainly not an easy thing to replace. He's also a center. He wins a ton of draws. He's an ace on both penalty kill units. He's a drafted lifelong Canuck. 
it's just it's really hard to fathom the idea of Horvat wearing a different hockey sweater. And and so I think that discussion has been subsumed for all those reasons. All of that said, you know, the market for centermen has gone a little bit bananas since the pandemic hit. Now, dating back actually a little bit further, Kevin Hayes has never had a 50-point season. The Kevin Hayes one, it just looks, <laughs> it looks he's, funnier and he's funnier a seven the more point, you look at it. He's a $7.2 million player. He's never had a 50-point season. Yeah. And it was a seven-year deal, too, I believe, right? Bo Horvat, Bo Horvat has 50-point seasons for breakfast, right? Like, Bo Horvat's baseline is 50 points and has been since 2016, right? I mean, the guy is a model of consistency. Every year, you know, you're getting 25 goals and 35 assists, roughly, and 60 points, just about. Um, you know, give or, give or take five points here or there. So, you know... Within that context, I, I don't know that Horvat has the resume for an $8.5 million Zibanejad deal based on his production, although there's a real chance he would have scored 40 goals if he'd stayed healthy this season. Um, I still don't think he's quite at that 8.5 level, but his numbers compare pretty favorably to Tomash Hurdle, who just signed at, what, I think that was eight, yeah, eight times eight. 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 And it, they compare very favorably, and you just think about it, there's a difference between like what is this player worth when you really want to get exact about their value and what could they command as a UFA. Right. And if Bo Horvat really wanted to be aggressive and push things till, you know, July 1st, 2023 and get offers from other markets, <laughs> there there's be no teams, telling. There there's be no teams telling. falling all over themselves to try to sign Bo Horvat. And who knows, and now you lose the eighth year in that context, but who knows what kind of deal uh, you, you'd be able to get on the open market. Especially if the cap goes up another million. And, you know, yeah. I mean, Bo Horvat's going to be a highly sought-after commodity if he decides to play it that way. That said, you know, I, I think there's been a sense that that's one that'll get done. I, I think it's been backburner because everyone just assumes, as as you sort of uh, specified at the start of the segment, that, that it'll get done. And so we plug Bo Horvat into our game score value added mm-hmm. model over at the Athletic, which generates an aging curve, a long term projection for for what what that player is likely to contribute. And where the Horvat conversation gets really interesting is that looking ahead through twenty twenty seven, right? So we're not talking about projecting what will Horvat do next year. We're talking about projecting what Horvat will be and do at thirty four, mm-hmm. right? Thirty three, and the model likes him as a top six contributor through his early 30s and yet aggregate value on his next five seasons after this one after this one falls just about under six million in terms of like market value price for his contributions not as comparables not what he can demand but what his value is likely to be now this is how it works right i mean horvat's provided this club with something like seven or eight million dollars in value for much of the past four years while being paid 5.5. And that's the system. He was a restricted free agent. The club handled his second contract, probably the best, like the Benning era second contracts, by far the best of them was the the Bo Horvat deal. Six years, 5.5. You know, from today's vantage point, would you have been better off going at 6.5 for eight? For eight? Yeah, you would have. But, you know, that would have been a huge ticket, a huge bet at the time. Huge gamble, huge gamble. The fact is, is that in comparison with the Pedersen Bridge... Um, you know, other than Demko's sec- uh, third deal, I guess. Well, so that doesn't count because it's a third deal. Uh, um, among the second contracts that the Benning regime did, the Hughes and the Horvat deal, like Hughes has a chance to be as good, but the Horvat deal is sort of the gold standard. That was the best one. 
And that's coming to an end. At this point, you know, you're looking at seven, I think, as sort of a baseline. And the overwhelming likelihood once you do that deal is that Horvat will no longer provide you with surplus value, which, you know, again, speaks to the conversation about some of the difficult decisions facing this club. Because while he's unlikely to provide you surplus value, he, from a raw on-ice value perspective, there's a ton of stuff that he does that's A, impossible to replace, and B, completely unique to him specifically in this marketplace that also has to be accounted for in how this club manages the decision. The Horvat deal of the three that we're discussing probably comes loaded with the most risk despite the way that we've just assumed it's a fait accompli in this marketplace. It's probably the riskiest of the deals, particularly if the club cannot find a way to manage the annual average value of that deal. Uh, Because while we've thrown out some high-end comps, there's some comps that I'm sure the Canucks would prefer. Guys like Brock Nelson, another really consistent centerman, scores 50 points a year. Um, You know, a little bit lower end than Horvat, but not outside the realm. Like, that's not an unreasonable comp. That's a $6 million deal, although it was done before the pandemic. Um, And and most people in the industry are throwing out pre-flat cap era comps. (laughs) Similarly, Braden Shen. Braden Shen, 6.5 times 8 coming after he was a major contributor to a Stanley Cup winning team. Um, you know, he was a he's a 60-point guy year after year, just like Bo. Probably a little more physical, right? A little bit more physical value. But but I think Horvat's got the reputation as the better defensive player, whether that's deserved or not. And so that's a $6.5 million annual average value. If the Canucks can manage the AAV of Horvat's next deal, for me, even beyond term... I think that would be you, and usually I'd say the opposite. You're better off paying up front, right, and not <laughs> not risking the uh, the, the, the long tail. Yeah, but but I think with Horvat because his because of his consistency and because his age is still like he's still relatively young. He'd be 29. I think it's his age 29 season, right? That that his extension will yes. kick in for, or is it 28? He's 27. It's 28. Now. It's his tw- yeah, because he'll play next year at 27. It'll okay, be 28, 28 when the extension kicks so, in. At least you get two years in his in his twenties, yep. right? So, uh, you know, managing managing. I mean, it's look an eight year deal takes you through age thirty six. Yeah, the back end of that deal is gonna gonna probably, um, you know, look a little uh, funky. But managing the AAV, I think, is crucial because his contributions are not star level in terms of the offensive side of the game. Even though his his overall impact is good, is very good. It's not elite. It's it's very much like. Strong middle six or low end yeah. top line contributions. He's not a he's not a first line center on a Stanley Cup team. No, right? I don't think so. He's valued extremely highly around the league, but not to that level. Yeah, right? he's a he's a really good second line center on, yeah. on a Stanley Cup contending team. Yeah, that, or, yeah, or a, or a low end first line center on a team that's you know sure. scraping and clawing. So you know, I I think managing the AAV on Horvat is going to be essential, and the risk on that deal is going to be very high particularly if the Canucks cannot keep the number at a, at a you know, not a hometown discount level, but but relatively low. A, I, I a think palatable number, for a sure. A palatable number is crucial. Uh, Amro, the actor, texts in, the comparison to me will be the Gabe Landis-Cog deal. Of course, Landis-Cog did 8 by 7 full no-move. Interesting situation because the captain of that team, you know, yep. brings a lot of the same things in terms of uh, physicality. Well, and that's a hometown discount. Work, yeah, work ethic. It's, a, it's a really good comp, actually. Now, he's a winger, so it's a little bit different, but just in terms of he's not... The most he he's not the guy who leads that team offensively, but he's a key part of it still. He's yeah. the captain, all of that, and 
you know, long term for a, a rough and tumble player, maybe it doesn't age well, but you got the AAV a little bit down and you keep everyone happy. I do think that's an, that's a good uh, a good shout out by Amro there. V- very good shout out. And then you get to the other key part of this question, which is in signing this deal and the JT Miller deal, right? You need to make sure that you're making hay in the front end of those contracts, right? If you're not, if you're not positioned to do that, then you're in a really tough spot, right? Then you're in a rebuilding spot, to be totally honest with you. I don't think this organization believes they're there. I don't personally think they're there. Uh, But, you know, it will up the stakes of how quickly this team can turn it around because you don't want to be cresting. You don't want to be at your best when 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 Horvath's 34 at 7.5 million a year, right? And And that's the thing. As I said, you know, in a vacuum, I can see the logic of exploring. Oh, you know what, man, the risk for Horvat, it's too much. We're, we're going to explore trading him. It just feels like if you do that, it's such an extreme move. You're basically, if you're not fully accepting explicitly that you're in kind of a classic tear it down rebuild, you're coming really, really close to the precipice of that. And, and, that, and I just don't see that happening I, here. It would be a, symbolically, it would signal a new era. Yes. And I, I suspect that's not where we're going. Um, You know, but it's worth proceeding with eyes wide open in terms of the risk. Now, it's, it's still, it's not a blank check scenario, right? Like you still have to, as you said, manage the risk and make sure it's a number that works for you long term, even if you, if you, even if you're committed to keeping them here. 100%. So this also speaks to why I like this model, right? Why I like this game score value added model beyond the fact that it's the best publicly available model, beyond the fact that it's an in house model at the athletic and that it outperforms Vegas year after year. But it forces you to have something firm. The, the challenges and grounds your assumptions, right? I'm not by by no means would I ever advocate for making decisions off of it. You're you're going to make misses. You're going to have misses too if you're paying attention to it. Uh, Chris Tanev is a really good example, and the value that Chris Tanev brought to Calgary isn't just based off of durab- or would have brought to Vancouver as an unrestricted free agent. You know the the GSVA model said huge risk, like, red flag, right? But when you considered the way that he fit particularly well with Hughes, right? I thought there was still logic to doing it, despite what the model said. The model the model was just like, hey, big risk here. It was a big risk. It worked out for Calgary. It didn't work out for Van to, to move on from him. But nonetheless, you, you, I think the value of having that warning light flash is high when you're making decisions on, on players and projecting future value as much as, you know, five, six years out. With Miller and Horvat. The model also challenged my assumptions a little bit because for for a lot of the underlying reasons we've discussed, um, Horvat's consistency, the uh, way that he's resonated in this market, the Mm -hmm. fact that he just feels like a Canuck and will never, ever play for another team. All of that goes into why we've considered Horvat to be, you know, this safe deal that just has to happen. No questions asked. Like, you know, the club's going to do it. And with Miller, all we've talked about for months is will they or won't they? Will they trade him or will they extend him? And yet, for all of that perception gap between the two, the model sees really JT Miller as a far safer bet. A far safer bet on a big money extension. Even a Zabanajad-style extension or higher. Even a premium version of the Zabanajad bet, the model sees as safer than something like seven and a half times eight for Horvat. Like, much safer. They think there's a much, the model thinks that there's a much higher probability of JT Miller living up to that type of deal based on the fact that over the last four years, he's had two elite seasons and the model buys 
that that's a new baseline for him. The model believes that JT Miller is going to be, as I put it before, um, you know, a trash-talking version of Adam Oates into his (laughs) 30s, into his 30s. It believes that. But one of the factors that you have to weigh with Miller, it's not that he's, you know, about to, he's going to be 30 throughout the life of the deal. And, you know, we've seen so many of those deals, Jeff Skinner, Louis Erickson, uh, be the types of contracts that are net negatives the day they're signed. Um, the model thinks that Miller can sustain a pretty high level of production into his mid thirties, even though he's only been elite two of the past four years. And in the other two seasons has actually been just a top six level contributor, right? Like where, you know, what Horvat is, you even know what Besser is year over year. Miller has vacillated wildly between being one of the best forwards in the league and, and make no mistake, the 2019-20 season, Miller was one of the top 15 forwards in hockey too. Mm-hmm. This year he was a top 10 scorer and his valuation is going to be sky high. We all know this. We all know that the incentives for Miller's camp have to line up with the idea that you'd ideally like to get something done off of the season he just had flirting with 100 points. The model, the model sees him as that high-end contributor, and that has to be weighed heavily too because we've talked about the Miller deal being super risky, and I think it is, right? Like there's a lot in Miller's profile that gives me pause when I, you know, in, in terms of betting, as the model does, that Miller's likely to repeat the performance that he had this year. Uh, you know, on the, on the side of the ledger that colors me skeptical – he had one of the highest individual point percentages in the league, about 20 points higher than his usual career average, which lends, lends me to believe that he was overly credited just as a result of random distribution uh, with points over the course of the season. Uh, his defensive impact, five on five, remains spotty, remains spotty. Uh, the shooting percentage numbers for him on the power play and at five on five, completely outside of his career norms. All of that suggests re- regression to me. And yet on the other side of the of the ledger, you have, he moved to center. Yeah. His skill set that drove his production is all in his head. It's it's intelligence. It's a series of passes. That's the type of skill set that tends to age better well, than I, being like a, a burner or, or a physical specimen just overpowering guys. I will also say, you know, he had the type of year where he can regress significantly just in terms of points production and still be incredibly valuable as an offensive player, right? Like, no question. He could regre- regress back to what he was. Uh, in his first year in Vancouver, which, as you said, was still ninety one of, point player, <laughs> yeah. one of the most one of the most valuable forwards in the league, one of the most productive forwards in the league. Like he's got that margin for error kind of built in. I, I feel though like we've gotten to a point in this market where the discussion on Miller is it's an obvious decision that the club needs to trade him and reset the books. And what this model says to me is no, that's you know throw that easy assumption out the window. This is not an obvious one. This is not an easy call one way or the other. And to frame it that way is inaccurate to do a disservice to the factors that the club should be weighing in, in proceeding here, because there is a real chance. There is a real world where Miller lives up to a big money deal. Now, would I advocate being the team that makes that bet? I wouldn't. I don't think it's a sharp bet, but I think it's a reasonable one. And I think that's a really important takeaway in in grounding this discussion. Uh, Let's quickly finish up with a tour around Brock Besser, which is just to say that the model says that Besser is very, very good. Yeah. In fact, the model sees Besser as being extraordinarily consistent, despite his reputation as a streaky scorer. The problem is the model just doesn't see him being worth $7.5 million. They see him being worth something in the mid-six range. 
model's still very high on a, on a long term bet on Besser. Uh, just that just that the qualifying offer level uh, that he's at complicates things. I think in the in Besser's situation, we're really just looking at a world where the model confirms what we knew. We we've already thought right. We, we, we knew it. Good. The player, model, not model says yes. Five. Yeah. And 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 we can sort of move on um, with our with our sort of preconceived assumptions yeah. confirmed. But in Horvat and Miller's case, and again, this is why I like to refer to it. I do think you know we need to tweak the conversation just a little bit. The Horvat deal shouldn't probably be the blank check slam dunk we've assumed it is and the Miller decision is not an easy one one way or the other. There is there is real stakes um and real reason to go in either direction. The Miller one is really fascinating to me in particular because we have spent so much time as you said almost on the assumption that a trade would happen and you know we've spun out of that what would the package look like? What do you need to target? Do you need to get, you know, a young right-handed defenseman or is it just about the flexibility? We've talked a lot about what that path looks like. And what this conversation kind of drives home to me is, one, if you are exploring a trade for JT Miller, you have to absolutely stick to your guns on how valuable he is, right? Like oh, you yeah. cannot be you cannot accept a low ball offer. You have to act like you have this incredibly premium asset to deal because you do. But the other thing is I think we do and I think we'll get into this throughout the course of the week here. We need to spend more time thinking about okay, if you make the bet on JT Miller, what are the other dominoes to fall? How right. do you then build a winner around that deal that hasn't gotten a lot of attention because I think we've assumed it's going to go one way, but there's a lot of really interesting questions to tackle uh, if it goes the other way, which it might. Well, stay tuned to the Athletic for tomorrow, or when we'll cover it. Stay tuned to this program when go. we'll discuss it. And last but not least, the Miller topic and the decision made this summer on Miller is going to define this club, their quality, their flexibility, their options for the duration of the Demko Pedersen Hughes prime seasons. And if you want to understand why the, the nattering nabobs in this, uh, in this particular marketplace can't stop talking about it, of which of course I'm referring to uh, you and us. Funny. Yes. In particular, <laughs> that's it. This is as high stakes as it gets for this club. Uh, you've got it on uh, Sportsnet 650. The People Show, Bick Nazar and Randy Janda is up next. We will be back tomorrow. Again, it's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.